0: The following is a production of differentbrains.com.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Hackie Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. We're going to do this one a little bit differently. I have the honor of giving a keynote in a couple of days down at the annual meetings of the AADMD. That's the American Academy of Developmental Medicine and Dentistry. And so what I thought this time is give you kind of the highlights of some of our interviews with some of the leaders in the front lines of medicine and dentistry who make sure that we all have access no matter what our diagnosis is and no matter how different our brains may be. First up, we're going to take a look at my friend, Dr. Steve Perlman, who is one of my heroes. He's one of the co-founders of the AADMD, and he was right there at the birth of the Special Olympics as well.
2: The challenges are huge. You know, as you know, um, everything we do, well, so my job is to really now currently is to increase access to care, for people with intellectual disabilities, and to help educate healthcare providers to take care of them and to take better care of them, but we're faced with so many barriers. You know, I've lectured about this my whole career, and I've always talked about that one of the biggest barriers is, is payment, finances. You know, they tend, people they tend to live in the people with ID tend to be at the poverty level. Um, they don't have access to quality healthcare because the limitations, the problems with the Medicaid programs. Uh, every state has a different Medicaid program, but it certainly is not helpful uh, to people that take more time uh, to, to examine them, to understand their problems. So I've talked about provider, uh, I've talked about finances as being a huge barrier. Healthcare providers don't have the educational background to treat these patients. You know, the medical school curriculums are packed Dental school curriculums have, uh, have are packed. And as a, as a matter of fact, we have been fighting dental schools to change the curriculum to educate dental students in the care of people with intellectual disabilities. And we've met a major roadblock. We've fought this with the Council on Dental Accreditation for years. And the only thing to this date, the only thing that we can get past were the dental students be educated in the diagnosis and treatment planning for a person with a special health care needs, we were never able to get them to commit to actual treatment and that's because the schools say number one we don't have a faculty to treat to we don't have a faculty to educate the students, and number two, we can't make any money on the schools at the at, at doing the services and so the can you believe that the only thing we're able to get after all these years and all this fighting they would not commit to having a, a dental student actually treat a patient it's only the diagnosis and treatment planning and medical schools so now our new one of our new pr- projects hacky for AADMD is we are actually uh, have gotten a grant to change medical education and to develop education for medical students in the treatment of people with intellectual t- with special health care needs. And I'm very excited about that because That's we're great. doing. You know,
1: I, I was lucky enough to uh, uh, hook up with somebody at Boston University where via Skype I gave a lecture on it to the third-year medical students at Boston University, and I was delighted to be able to give the first-ever lectures in neurodiversity to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons this past year also. Um, but it's got a long, long way to go. I think what may be, what may be on the horizon to make it into a cookbook of sorts, because right now, it you hit a wall. I know when I've spoken to doctors about it, and you are f- tackling that to try to change it, and you're running into roadblock after roadblock.
2: Oh uh, Yeah, but, Hecky, think as a healthcare professional. This this is what we have to deal with. First of all, you know, it, so it's more than finances. It's more than lack of education of healthcare providers. There's the stigma. Uh, you know, in your field, you came. You know, everybody. Oh, I'm a I'm a sports medicine guy because that's what the elite be, in your in your special specialty of orthopedic surgeon.
1: We only fill really? half of the fellowships for pediatric orthopedics. That's right.
2: Those are the cream. I want to be a sports medicine. I want to treat the uh, you know yeah. the athletes and rich and famous. So you got the stigma of like you're treating people with intellectual disabilities, that's because you're not good enough to treat neurotypical people. You know, the the lack of communication, the problem of communications yeah. problems. Yeah. You got uh, patients booked all day, and now you've got somebody who's uh, being brought to your office because maybe they have a limp or, or their behavior is bad now, you know, because all of a sudden they're exhibiting uh, behavioral issues. Well, a lot of times that behavioral issue is an undermined medical problem that that person can't express to you. So you get somebody who brings the patient from a group home, and you're talking to the caregiver, and the caregiver says, "Well, I, I just drove him here. I don't know the pro- I don't know the history of the problem." And you're dealing with a nonverbal patient. So those communication problems to somebody who has a busy afternoon, they're terrible. You know the lack of the problems in. Uh, in who has ownership of this problem. You know, you see a problem with one of your patients and you need to operate them, but you need consent of a legal guardian. Who's going to take, who is going to Well, that's what I mean. You see, it's
1: so what you're describing is, it's like like this. That's right. And you have to make it to, here's the cookbook, pal, ABCD. You took, back in the formation of this, an individual who is supposed to get all of her teeth pulled because it's the best thing to do, a consensus of 99.9% of dentists in the world, that's the best thing to do for this individual. And Steve Perlman said, no, we'll go in there, here's our cookbook, we'll do general anesthesia, we'll get the right assistance, the right equipment, the right everything, we'll also contact the medical doctor. To see, as long as his patient's under general anesthesia, what else are we going to do? There's communication, there's a spirit, there's a goal, and guess what? Everybody likes a leader. If the leader has a good thing he wants to do, people are basically good. I feel, but they get scared when they're ignorant, and they get scared when they don't know what they're doing, and they get scared when they're not getting paid, and they got to, they have to meet their overhead, you know, and these are all things where we'll say, you know, here's how we're going to attack it and that's what you've been doing. All I'm doing is trying to be on a soapbox to get people to listen to you because you know what you're doing. Next, let's hear from Dr. Bencole Johnson, who's the head of the Brain Consortium down at the University of Maryland. Bancole was featured in the HBO documentary, Addiction, and he's one of these people who really gets it. Here at Different Brains, we're trying to get it all under one roof, and everyone except for you is in all these different silos where you have mental health issues over here and developmental issues here and neurological issues here, and it's all the same stuff. Isn't, wouldn't you agree with that?
3: It is all the same stuff, and I can give you a a perfectly good analogy if you'd like to hear one.
1: I would love it. Uh,
3: Let's say you uh, were walking down, I wouldn't say the uh, the streets of, let's say, uh, of, of elsewhere, and unfortunately for you, somebody punched you in the head. Now, you might well say, Uh, when you got punched in the head and you later became depressed. Well, I got depressed because somebody punched me in the head. Obviously, it upset me because I wasn't very happy about it and I I wasn't happy that I got punched in the first place. But here is the other piece of it. Could it be that when you got punched in the face, that caused a swelling in your brain, that swelling in your brain changed specific structures in your brain and it made you depressed? and it had nothing to do with your psychological reaction to it, which was, could have been a part, but the primary issue was because you got punched in the head. Now also when you get punched in the head, as you know, you have traumatic brain injury, so you also have traumatic brain injury associated with it. So the neurological is associated with the psychological and is associated with the behavioral, and as you say, Harold, it's all in
1: one brain. You have no idea. This is such music to my ears. It's like a kindred spirit where you get it. Now, why is it? And I'll quote here Steve Ronick. He happens to be the head of Henderson Behavioral Systems down here, Behavioral Health Henderson down here in Florida. They have 800 employees. They serve 30,000 patients a year. He said, Hacky, why is it when you go to a cardiologist or an oncologist, there's no stigma. But if you go to a mental health professional, there's a stigma attached, and we get better results. We get better results. And what you're doing there, it sounds like it may help get rid of the whole stigma to all of this.
3: I couldn't agree with you more, and it's really very curious, and I think it dates back to a few hundred years, whereby people tried to separate the mind from the body, in some way as if there were two components of a system that never really talked to one another. And this mind was meant to be some higher order type of cognitive thinking, and the body was meant to be basically the mechanics, and they were not connected. So when you go and see someone because you have a mental health issue, people believe that it must be due to something to do with this nebulous concept of a mind, and that it's somehow your responsibility while you're ill, or at least partially your responsibility, and it has nothing to do with your body. Well, we now know that this is completely incorrect. The brain is the most complex organ in uh, in the universe. It has connections with your heart, it has connections with basic almost everything else, And to give your friend the heart analogy, we now know that individuals who have heart disease often also have mental manifestations of that heart disease and brain stress or stress in the brain is also associated with myocardial infarction or cardiac arrest and and cardiovascular disease. So it's one system. I think some people like to make it simple, but As my professor used to say, it can only be as simple as it really is.
1: (laughs) Next, we have another dedicated dentist, Dr. Alan Wong, also of the AADMD. And he's at the Pacific School of Dentistry, where he teaches and inspires. And he has some very good insights into helping those who need our help the most. What message, if you had to give one message on the podium to the participants at that meeting in Chicago, the combined meeting of the IADH and the Special Care Dentistry Association, what would that succinct message be?
0: The succinct message is this, that uh, we need to think things differently. It's a different paradigm. Our patients with special needs, we need to focus more on what we call carries management by risk assessment. Many of the problems that are faced with our patients with the dental problems are preventable, and if we capture them early and use some of the prevention strategies, such as the fluoride varnishes, and now we have a new method of a silver diamine fluoride that might be uh, something to look at. If we work on um, the prevention area earlier, we won't have to have patients suffering in dental disease. Uh, So I think we need to all work together in concentrating on more research and the prevention so we can capture our friends at an early age and hopefully uh, help them to not have uh, uh, unnecessary teeth loss so that they can function and participate in society without having to have, uh, be silently suffering in pain. So uh, my passion is Let's work together in prevention, and let's work together in caries uh, risk assessment.
1: Well, that that's great. That was a that was a great great statement because oftentimes we physicians and dentists get so caught up in the day-to-day logistics of the office, we forget that word prevention sometimes. And that old adage about an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure in the dentistry world, based on my limited understanding, it's a ton of cure. Can you elaborate, and I know our friends also at the Tooth Fairy, um, also America's Tooth Fairy and uh, the other people are all doing a great job in prevention. Could you elaborate on some of the specifics of prevention?
0: Well, certainly. Uh, I'd be happy to. And and you mentioned also another great organization, American's Tooth Fairy. They've done a a, a tremendous amount of uh, support, and uh, and, and so I can't say enough about them. They're a great organization, too. But in prevention, it's not a one thing that causes cavities or gum disease. It's a multiple of things. So I think it's uh, in terms of being aware of things and uh, looking for risk assessments, for example, Many of our patients take medications, some for anti-seizures, sometimes for anti-hypertension, anti-neuroleptics, all those medications have side effects. One of the major side effects is drying of the mouth. And the drying of the mouth causes a xerostomic effect that increases cavities. uh, It's all about chemistry. So whenever our saliva is decreased or changed, the pH is, is also altered, it becomes more acidic. And a lot of our patients have multiple medical problems that have side effects that have gastric reflux. Well, that also brings acid to the mouth and that also weakens the teeth and makes them more prone to cavities. Uh, Those simple things working together in an interdisciplinary approach and saying, is this the right medicine? And what is it doing to the mouth? If we start thinking in those kinds of terms and saying we need to do things to counteract it, either neutralize some of the acids in the mouth to minimize that of the cavity disease process, or that we need to varnish the teeth or seal the teeth at an early age so that they are more resistant to cavities. Those are the things that we think about, not your, your common brushing and flossing is helpful, but it's not what's gonna solve the problem. It's really understanding that there's a chemical change in the mouth, uh, whether it's from lack of saliva, decrease of saliva, increase of sugar intake, so, the nutritional concept, the, the hygiene concept, the, um, the uh, salivary health is all important things that, that we should be thinking about for the patient.
1: Next, on Exploring Different Brains, we move a little bit closer to home here in Florida. We go to Nova Southeastern University with Dr. Tom Temple, who's the head of TRED, the Translational Research and Economic Development. Tom has a great history as a first, a brilliant orthopedic surgeon specializing in oncology. I used to refer patients to him down at the University of Miami, back when he was an orthopedic surgeon actively practicing. And then he took over the tissue bank down there, and now he's at Nova Southeastern University, and Tom Temple is a visionary who's trying to get all the research under one roof. And he's another one who gets the importance of all of our different brains.
4: This is one of the final frontiers, our fundamental understanding of the brain. And we have a number of behavioral initiatives in uh, Parkinson's disease, for example, um, in addiction, um, and uh, in uh, people whose brains have been affected by toxic exposure. And our goal is to bring in all of these behavioral elements into the various institutes. And, it, and, and there's so many synergies between the brain and cancer, the brain and uh, the immune system, the brain in stem cells, for example. Could we fundamentally take... A, a human being with Parkinson's disease and deliver a stem cell product into a very specific part of the brain and reverse those effects. Now, we have a Parkinson model right now in a rat where we actually um, created a defect in that part of the brain and those animals walk in a circle, just like a, like a part of a very patterned uh, uh, behavior. But when we re- uh, repopulate that Part of the brain with a stem cell, we can write their gait. So we're looking at different ways of, of using stem cells, of using drugs, and delivering them in the blood brain, uh, through the blood brain barrier or across the blood brain barrier through the uh, through a nasal route. So there are a lot when you combine pharmacy, when you combine cell biology, stem cell research, and and neurobiology and neuroanatomy and what we're doing is breaking down those silos. We don't have the department of Parkinson's disease, we don't have the department of of bad behavior. I mean they're all together and that's the whole purpose of a Center for Collaborative Research. Everybody is focused on problems from their different perspective and they actually talk to one another and they actually learn from one another. And in doing, and it's not just Nova Southeastern. We have global relationships with the University of St. Petersburg, with India, with uh, uh, with the Karolinska Institute. So this is a global enterprise. It's not just Nova Southeastern, and we're bringing together the best of everybody in the world to look at these problems and tackle them.
1: Finally, we're going to talk to another one of the leaders of the AADMD, who's on a path to become its president. And that's Dr. Steve Sulkis from the University of Rochester.
5: I I actually, unlike many people who work with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, had no personal experience with with, with this population. In fact, when I was applying for pediatric residencies where there were programs that had obligatory rotations with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, I actually sort of like graded them lower because I was scared. And I happened to end up at a really great residency program at the time in Syracuse, New York, at Upstate Medical Center. And while I was there, they created a rotation for pediatric residents focusing on developmental and behavioral problems. And I was one of the first people to go through it. And it was pretty creative. One And one of the things that they did was, like, in the first or second day, they had us go to a state institution in Syracuse. And after some introductory talk, they had us go and meet some of the people who lived there. And the first thing I was asked to do was feed a guy lunch. And this was a guy with cerebral palsy and behavior challenges, and he was nonverbal. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And I was wearing more of the pureed food by the end of that meal than he was than, than ever got into him. And I was thinking, oh man, this is gonna be a long month. Anyway, I got my lunch break and I went, they, they then had me go to this guy's program area where he was getting served, you know, in day program and there I see this same guy who I couldn't do anything with responding to, the, to a very creative teacher in that room and doing various tasks and every time he successfully completed a task, they wheeled his wheelchair over to a wind chime that was hanging in the middle of the room where, where, where he could get at it and he would whack the wind chime and get a big smile on his face. And I thought, oh, man, did I misjudge this guy? I, you know, this, And did I misjudge the entire field? Well, over the course of that month, I spent time in schools, in community settings, and really got to see kids with developmental disabilities in settings that were not health settings. And I suddenly realized that these people that these kids had lives, and they were cute, and they were fun, and they were playful. And I went to one school that I will never forget. It's a wonderful place called juonio in Syracuse. where ha- It was a preschool where half the kids had disabilities and half were typical kids. And at recess, they went out in pairs to the playground. And I went out after them. And when I got out on the playground, if the kids weren't using adaptive equipment. I couldn't tell which kids were which on the playground. I thought, this is it. This is, you know, this this is Valhalla. This is the way it's supposed to go in the world. And I said, this is, boy, have I been stupid. I mentioned our LEND program and that we have people in all these different disciplines. And we have, oh, 15 to 20 people come through each year. And they're all graduate students or, res- or fellows and, or, you know, advanced folks who want to focus in developmental disabilities one of the most powerful experiences we give them is to connect them to a family and have them go into the community and visit the family in their home or go to, the, go to a person's school or workplace and, and have the kind of experiences I had when I was a resident of actually seeing what people's lives are like, where they are living and, what the, and, and seeing the challenges but also seeing the successes. When you get out of your professional bubble and start seeing people as people as opposed to patients or people we're serving. I think that's profound. And I, I my, my little dream, so it's been working great for our LEND trainees for many years. Uh, my dream is to have every primary care physician and dental resident coming through the University of Rochester healthcare system have that kind of experience. Just two, three visits with, with, with an individual or, the, or a family where you're not being asked any medical or dental questions. You're there to learn and you're there to learn about the person's life and find out about the family and what and, and, the, and the circle of support that that person has. I think once we get out of our professional bubbles, we, we can understand people as people and not just as patients.
1: For information, visit us at differentbrains.com.